Welcome back to the Revelation Power Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Hopkins, and this is episode 170. We've gotten quite a ways. We're in the Gospel of John, and today we start chapter 18. John chapter 18, verse 1. Jesus leaves the what we call the upper room, that place where he and the disciples celebrated the Passover feast. They walk past the temple and across the Kidron Valley to a garden. Other gospels tell us it is the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, John doesn't mention that name, nor does he tell us uh, a lot about Jesus praying or coming to find the disciples had fallen asleep. He doesn't tell us about the naked boy running out of the garden after Jesus is arrested. He doesn't even tell us about Judas kissing Jesus on the cheek so that they know how to arrest the right person. His story of this event is very abbreviated and quite different from any of the other gospel accounts. Bear in mind that John and Matthew were the only two New Testament gospel writers who were present for this event. So it's probably best to compare to compare their stories. Luke is interviewing people for his gospel account. Um, he had access to all of the people who were intimately close to Jesus, including Jesus' mother. And so he collects a variety of perspectives. Mark is probably writing for Simon Peter, who as a fisherman was uneducated and probably unable to write for himself, especially early on. Now he may have learned to write, but it's it's really very likely that the epistles of 1st and 2nd Peter are from Peter, but were dictated to someone else who wrote them down. The language is very tidy in those epistles. And it's not likely that a person who taught themselves to write at a later age and who started out really pretty illiterate would write so such tidy uh, prose in, in in the two epistles. So this is an interesting account in the Gospel of John because John is there at the side of Jesus through the entire event, through the chain of events. And so his account is probably one of the most accurate. There is one penchant that John has that you need to be aware of. And that is anytime he gets the chance to show you the humanity, even the the blunderingness of Peter, anytime he can show you what an oaf Peter is, he will. And he will never show you Peter in a positive light. Uh, His sentiments about Simon Peter's shooting off his mouth before his brain was in gear is very obvious. And and this is one account in which it is most obvious. And I'll, I'll show you why as we get through it. But John chapter 18, beginning in verse one. After Jesus had finished his prayer, He took his disciples and went across the Kidron Brook or the Kidron Valley 
to a place where there was a garden. Judas, the traitor, knew exactly where this place was, for Jesus often went there with his disciples. The Pharisees and the leading priests had given Judas a large detachment of Roman soldiers and temple guards in order to go and seize Jesus. Judas, Judas guided them to the garden, all of them carrying torches and lanterns and armed with swords and spears. Jesus, knowing full well what was about to happen, went out to the garden entrance to meet them. Stepping forward out of the darkness, he asked, Who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. Notice that even in John's gospel, they don't recognize him. They hate this guy, but they don't know him well enough to arrest him unless someone identifies him to them or he identifies himself. They don't know him. They don't even recognize him. Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. Now Judas the traitor was among them. Jesus replied, I am he. Now, remember, he says there, I am, which is God's name. And you're really not supposed to use those Greek words, ego me, in a sentence, especially not, especially not about yourself. But Jesus steps right out and says, I am he, I'm God. That's why they fall down. The moment Jesus spoke the words, I am he, the mob fell backwards on the ground. They're afraid. It's not that God sends some spiritual wind or force to knock them down. They're terrified. It's the middle of the night. They've all heard the stories or they've seen the miracles that Jesus has done. He has raised the dead to life. He has touched a fig tree and it has died in minutes. They understand what he can do to them. And when he steps out and says, I'm he, not afraid, not cowering, not running, walking right out to them. It's not what they expected. And so you know how when a crowd recoils from something and tries to get away, but it's a big crowd and they're close together, they start to trip on each other and tumble all over the place. That's what's happening here. So once more, Jesus asked them, who are you looking for? As they gathered themselves and stood up, they said, again, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus replied, I told you that I'm the one you're looking for. So if you want me, let these other men go home. He said this to fulfill the prophecy he himself had quoted, Father, not one of those you have given me has been lost. Suddenly, Peter took out his sword and struck the high priest's servant, slashing off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus ordered Peter, put your sword away. Do you really think I will avoid the suffering which my father has assigned to me? So John doesn't have the whole bit of the prayer of, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Instead, he has this very strong personal quote from Jesus 
that says, Peter, put the sword away. Do you think I'm going to avoid the suffering my father has measured out for me? It's really an even stronger statement. But the focus of this section is right before that. And it's on Peter. And it's not made to look Peter look very good. If you think about people, 90% of people, almost exactly 90% of people are right-handed. So there's a 90% chance that Peter draws his sword in his right hand. Now, Malchus, the high priest servant, is there as a witness to the arrest, representing the presence of the high priest himself. And Peter swings at him and cuts off his right ear. Now, when you face somebody face to face, their right is on your left. Their left is on your right. So Peter, swinging a sword in the dark, cuts off Malchus' right ear. If, by 90% chance, Peter is right-handed, he probably is, Malchus's head would be in the way of slashing off his right ear. Or Peter would have to make some very delicate swordsmanship move. He's a fisherman, not really a fencer, probably not trained in swordsmanship. He's just hacking with that sword and he gets a right ear without lopping off the top of Malchus's head? Impossible. Unless, unless he's behind Malchus. Then it's a straight and easy slice. Might have even been trying to bring the sword right down on the kid's head. But the kid moved slightly, and so what he got was an ear. And he lops off that boy's ear. From behind, I think. I think it's most likely that Peter is behind this teenage boy against whom he is brandishing his sword. It's an act of cowardice. In the dark, from behind, where no one can see, Peter's lopping off ears. It's absolute cowardice. He doesn't jump in front of Jesus and threaten those who are going to arrest him. He doesn't stand up to soldiers or temple guards. He doesn't stand up to seasoned Roman centurions and wave his sword around. From in the dark, behind a teenage kid, he lops off an ear. That's Peter's contribution to this whole event. That's, I will never betray you, Lord. I would die for you. From behind, in the dark, against unarmed teenagers. He's a coward. We always look at the first 
we, we look at the three statements of Peter later in the courtyard where he says, I don't know the man, I don't know the man. And then he swears by blankety, blankety, blank, I tell you, I don't know the man. And then the rooster crows. But that's not where Peter's betrayal starts. It starts right here. He does something that is not Christ-like. It is not what he's been taught. It's not what Jesus would do. It's not who Jesus is, nor whom he's taught his disciples to be. It's Peter being Peter. And John wants you to see that. That Peter was more important to Peter than anything else. Peter's not defending Jesus. He's defending himself. In the dark from behind a 14-year-old boy. Peter is not accomplishing God's will. And, and those of us who've always heard the story say, well, of course he's not. We understand that Peter's acting out on Peter's own, own way here. Jesus immediately scolds him and says, Peter, put away your sword. In another gospel, he says, Peter, those who live by the sword are going to die by the sword. Is that the path you want? He shames Peter in front of everyone. Honestly, he dresses Peter down in the whole arrest account. Jesus doesn't dress anyone else down. He doesn't even shame Judas. He shames Peter. He's very clear about praying that Judas was destined to do what Judas did. Peter disappoints him. Peter acts out of character. And Jesus shames him. Put your sword away. This isn't how my kingdom works. There's another part of the story that John leaves out that Luke tells us. And that's that Jesus took the severed ear and in front of everyone who arrested him, Judas included. And that's an important part of the account. In front of everyone, even Judas, Jesus puts the ear back on. No super glue, no sutures. I can't imagine how an ear must bleed if you just cut it straight off. Head wounds bleed like crazy. And there's a lot of blood in your ear. It's part of how your body cools itself. There's a lot of blood in your ear. When someone lops off an ear, you're going to bleed like crazy. Jesus puts it back on. Now there's blood on Malchus' garment. I promise you that. He has to go back and report to the high priest, to Caiaphas. Malchus, is that blood on your tunic? Yes, sir. Where did that come from? One of the outlaws took a sword and cut off my ear. He did what? He 
he cut off my ear. Malchus, your ears are both on your head. Yes, sir. That criminal named Jesus, well, he picked up my ear and he put it back on. How long do you think Malchus kept his job <laughs> as the high priest's assistant? It was an honor. Malchus comes from a family of, of some means because typically you, you bought, you made an offering to the high priest to win this honor for some member of your family. Someone has sponsored Malchus with a very generous gift to the high priest and to the temple for the honor of Malchus serving as his assistant. But I don't think he kept that job much longer because every single time from this moment on that Malchus sees, that, that Caiaphas sees Malchus, he's going to have to remember that ear got cut off. He's going to hear the account from all the temple guards and all the Sanhedrin, the, the Pharisees who were standing there. He's going to hear the account from many, many people. And now he's just heard it from Malchus himself. And he's going to have to look at that ear every time Malchus is in his presence and remember the man they crucified had the power to pick that ear up off the ground and put it back on. I don't think he could live with that. I don't think Malchus worked for him very long. Malchus probably got reassigned down to Jericho to clean cat boxes for the other priests. I don't know, but I'll bet he didn't work for Caiaphas very long. It's a short little account. And yet it says, Peter, after years of being right next to Jesus, after being the Ben-Hamin, the right-hand man, is still a coward, a brash, thoughtless coward when the rubber meets the road. His betrayal starts right here. Jesus admonishes him, scolds him, shames him, disowns him in some way. That's how it had to feel to Peter. Peter in his own mind, just offered to die for Jesus and Jesus scolded him. So when some little girl in the courtyard says, hey, weren't you with him? Jesus disowned me. Why wouldn't I disown him? The cowardice gets deeper. The wrong starts to multiply. All justified in Peter's mind. All justified in our own. If we're honest with ourselves, there are times when we are absolutely cowardly when it comes to the gospel. We would rather pick on each other than actually do the work of Christ in this world. Need evidence of that? Just look at social media. But pick the denomination to which you belong. Methodist, Lutheran, Baptist, Nazarene, Catholic. And look for the forums 
let's use Facebook because it's a fairly open forum and people can say whatever they want to say. And it's easy to have discourse and discussion there because it's not broken up like in other platforms. Just search on Facebook for the theological forum or group that belong to your denomination. Modern trends in Methodism. Theological thought in Lutheranism. Getting back to the original Martin Luther. Back to Calvin. Baptist speaking freely, whatever it's called. And join that forum. Now, prepare yourself because theological people suffer Peter disease really badly. Every time I join a theological discussion forum, my friends are always like, you need to be in here contributing your thoughts. And so they drag me into it and I join, answer the questions, get approved, and then I watch the stuff. In the denomination in which I serve for 35 years, there are people right now arguing over accommodating, affirming people of deviant lifestyles. And there are a group of people who say Jesus would accept everybody and they're not wrong. And there's another group of people who say but Jesus would insist that they grow and walk closer to God in which in which case their lifestyle is going to change. Their lifestyle is subject to their relationship with God, not the other way around. And those people also are right. But instead of one group saying, well, then give us time to walk with Jesus and grow like you've had time and, and help us, guide us, disciple us into the truth. You know, that's not going to happen. And the other group never says, Hey, we realize that this may be new to you. Come, let us reason together. Let's open the Bible together and let's talk about how we both see these key scriptures that we both use in proof text fashion, out of context, one or two verses at a time. Let's stop that. Let's read the whole section. Let's, let's study the Bible together and see where we can find common ground. That's not going to happen either. No, it's, it's much easier to yell at each other. There's a man from my tradition who wrote a book. His daughter is a member of the lesbian community. And as a pastor and theologian, he's trying to find a way to win his own children, to win his daughter for the kingdom of God. And so he's looking for ways to express the gospel in words that she will accept. I understand what he's doing. I also understand that it's a fool's endeavor. The gospel is already in the best words it can be in. That God loved you so much that he gave his one-of-a-kind son to give his life for you because he understood that unless your heart was broken, you'd continue in your own ways instead of considering his. 
And so to show you how much he loved you and how important it was that you understand that, he died for you. Not to save you. Not to represent you. Not to take your place. But to try and reach you. Hoping that by giving that kind of sacrifice, your heart would be moved. Broken. You would stand there and understand that a God who would die for you must truly love you. Then you might call out to him to let you feel the fullness of that love. And then he would redeem you. And then he would forgive you. And then he would save you. It isn't just about accepting his gift of eternal life. It's about being heartbroken by a God who would die for you. We don't even tell the story very well. No wonder we're not effective at it. God loved you so much that God in the flesh, Jesus, would endure suffering and death in your place so that you would never have to die, so that you would never have to to face the suffering of death what the Bible says. He loved you that much that he died with the, with the sole hope that it would touch your heart and, and cause you to want to know him better. See, we never get there because we're too busy arguing about should you say a prayer and should you repeat the words and should you have to tell the cross and the chasm or, or the Roman road? What method should you use? What questions should you ask? If you died tonight, do you know that you'd go to heaven or hell? No, no one knows that. It's a dumb question. No one knows that. Not the people you're trying to find by asking the question. And most of the people who say, I know I'm going to heaven have no clue. To evangelize requires to have a relationship. And these guys arguing on social media, they don't have anything to do with relationship with anybody. They're pointing fingers at the lost and at each other. At the people that they're hoping to win with the gospel. They are spewing judgment but they don't have that key element of a great white throne. It's not their place to be judging. Are those people living in sin? Not my place to judge. The Bible says they are. That's enough for me. But is my sin better than theirs? Because the Bible says, I've lived my whole life in sin. I was born in sin. The Bible says, all have sinned and do now yet fall short of the glory of God. Even if I've stopped sinning, even if I've asked Jesus Christ to be my Lord and Savior, and he has, am I now a fit representative of the full glory of God? 
absolutely not. And no matter how holy I am in this flesh, I will never be a clear picture of the full glory of God on this earth. I don't have room to point fingers. I don't have room to call other people names or to judge who's right, who's wrong, who's saved, who's not. That's way above my pay grade. And yet, every time I'm in one of these forums, people are calling people names. This dear brother that wrote this book on how to reach the LGBTQRSTUV community to which his daughter belongs, He's just trying to help Christians be a little bit less judgmental. Has he crossed the line into affirming things we don't believe in? Yes, frankly, he does. He's gone further than I'm comfortable to go. But you see, on the other side of the chasm is his daughter and he would walk straight through the gates of hell to try and bring her out. Has he gone further than I think he should? Yep. Am I surprised that he is journeying right through the gate into the fire to try and pull his daughter out? I am not. I would do the same. So would you. There are people on this earth so dear to you that if you saw them walk through the gate of hell, you would take a deep breath and run right in after them to try and save them from that place. I know it's true because there are men on this earth who don't even know the people for whom they run into real fire. And if they're brave enough to do that, I know when it's your daughter, your son, your brother, your sister, your mother, your father, you'd cross the line too because you love them that much. And that may be what it takes for them to see that there's a God who also loves them that much. Stop pointing fingers. Stop lopping off ears in the dark from behind. It's cowardice. Put the swords away. Put the snarky posts away. Put the judgment and the pointing fingers away. There's a song that I just absolutely love. It's by Casting Crowns. The, The chorus is, Jesus, friend of sinners, open our hearts to the world at the end of our pointing fingers. Let our hearts be led by mercy. Help us reach with open arms and open doors. Oh, Jesus, friend of sinners, break our hearts for what breaks yours. I have to stop after I turn off the recording device and pray again. Jesus, help me not be an ear-cutting coward. Help me serve the master faithfully who picks that ear up and puts it back on. 
Help me be the one who makes the healing impact, not the cut.